For the week of October 17th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 558, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. Sure, you're in Los Angeles now, but where were you this week? I was in Des Moines, Iowa at the North Central NATO show. And NATO, of course, stands for the National Association of Theater Owners. I was with theater operators, movie theater operators from Nebraska, Minneapolis, South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa. I think there might even be a little bit of Oklahoma, Missouri thrown in there. Uh, Definitely some Wisconsin and maybe one or two Michigans. So you, I'm assuming that that means you saw a lot of people who had mom and pop theaters. I'm sure there were some big chain people there too, but you're going to talk about those are the areas where you're going to find smaller theaters, you know, not 20 screen multiplexes, maybe two screens, four screens, a drive-ins, things like that. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there, you know, there, you know, South Dakota, there'd be people who have three screens and, or maybe two screens or maybe one screen and they're you know, frustrated that they have to hold the James Bond film for three weeks because they only have a thousand residents or 2000 residents or maybe 3000 residents in their catchment area in the area of that, where they get, uh, where they get patrons from and they will have all seen James Bond, no time to die by its second week. They don't need to keep it a third week. Well, you know, studios need to be a little flexible, right? A little smart. And you also said some people were annoyed that they couldn't get copies of certain movies, like some studios were not going to service uh, theaters, maybe that didn't have at least five screens or 10 screens or something like that. Yeah, there were studios saying, oh, I'm sorry, we can't send you a print. We're only opening uh, in, in theaters that have five or more uh, screens or six or more screens. Those seem to be the two numbers, which essentially is saying, we don't care about rural areas. We want major markets and that's it. Now, I don't understand that particular restriction because there are big theaters in major markets that just have one screen, for example, like the old Ziegfeld that's closed down, but things like that. There are big single screen movie theaters. There are some big Cinerama Dome, right? That's just a one screen place, right? So I don't quite understand that numerical thinking. And aren't we out of the era of print fees? Now we're all digital. And there, I assume that everybody has ed- exit out of those old contracts. And basically, you don't have to pay a physical print fee for a digital print of a movie. If I'm being confusing, you can explain to people what that means. Well, it used to be that you would, uh, as you know, in the days of 35 millimeter prints, you would have to spend $2,000, strike a print, basically create a print, ship it across the country at great expense to wherever it was, Des Moines, Iowa, or Aberdeen, South Dakota. Pompano, and, Florida. Yeah, Pompano, exactly. Florida, yeah. And so, you know, you release a film on 2,000 screens. Very often, you needed 2,000 prints to go to each one of those, and that cost a fortune which is why films would open up at different times in different territories because they take the print from the U.S. and send it to Australia because it costs a fortune. And they'd have a crappy, scratchy print, but that's another story. Now we have digital prints, and they can be sent out easily to everybody at virtually no expense. And for a while, while we transitioned, there was a print fee to help the theaters who had spent all that money to switch to digital. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, digital cost about $50,000 per screen minimum to to switch to. Well, the problem was, of course, that it was distributors. It was the studios that were saving all of the money. And so they were asking all of these exhibitors, hey, could you spend about $60,000 so that I could (laughs) save all this money? And exhibitors went, let me see, let me pencil that. No, we're not going to do it. Just keep sending us 35 millimeter. They said, we'll pay for it based on usage. So every time we send you a film, we'll pay $800 if you keep it for two weeks. Well, that 
deal is over now. So they spend about $35, $25 to $35 per print. Nothing. Now. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So what would be the reasoning? Can you imagine? Did it, you get a sense from the people why a studio would say, you know, you're not oversaturating the market because it's not that you're having 20 extra screens in LA where you already have a ton of screens. You're talking about a market that's not going to have access to the movie at all. Why would they say no? I don't know. That is something that I would like to find out from the studios. I mean, there has been talk about, you know, distribution executives who get bonuses based on per screen averages that they have to open a movie and that movie has oh to open to a, to a per screen average of X or above for them to get their bonus. I don't know if that's true, mind you. I'm just saying that that is one of the things that is being discussed. I would like to find out. Yeah, that's a, that's fascinating. You won't find it out at Show East, of course. What That a big event has been canceled. Yeah, Show East is, so years ago there was Show West in Las Vegas and then Show East in Atlantic City or Orlando. Uh, and movie theater operators from usually just the U.S. would go to the Western one or the Eastern one. Then CinemaCon came around and became more of an international show. Show East became the Latin American show. They're not happening this year in Miami. You can blame the pandemic for that. Huh. I mean, initially they canceled just their trade show portions while the manufacturers weren't showing up. And then eventually the travel restrictions, nobody from Latin America could come into the country. So it hmm. became less and less uh, of possible, really. Wow. Who am I going to blame for Bobby Flay breaking up with the Food Network? They could not come to a new deal. I guess the Food Network said, you know what? We've got 8,742 episodes of shows featuring Bobby Flay. We don't think we need any more. Apparently, it was money. He wanted more, and they couldn't come to terms, which is, but I mean, he has like three or four active current shows on the Food Network. My brother watches the damn beating Bobby Flay on repeat. I mean, I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> somebody beat Bobby Flay so he can go to bed. And it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, uh, you know, they, they made their network with Bobby Flay, but they certainly have a lot of episodes they can rerun from now until the end of time. But we'll have to see, you know, money, money, maybe they'll come back to the table. Maybe he's going to pull a Judge Judy and go somewhere else. Surely someone wants to be in business with Bobby Flay, but I want to be in business with you, Sperling. What are we going to talk about this week on the show? Well, uh, you know, I actually found out about the Bobby Flay thing because of you mentioning it. My question is, do you think that Bobby Flay is known internationally because most of his restaurants are here in the U.S.? And you I don't know, think he's, he's a worldwide star, no. Yeah, so he's a big chef here in the U.S. and, of course, had this big, you know, food show. You know, he had like umpteen food shows on the Food Network. Uh, but I guess we're not going to be talking about that anymore uh, on this week's episode of Showbiz Sandbox because... As you just mentioned, Michael, I came back from my trip just in time to avert an industry strike. That's right. You know, well you done. can thank me. You're welcome. We've got a box office news. And does the big screen success of Halloween kills prove movies can be hits in theaters, even when they're available on a stream or two? That's actually a scary thought. Get it? You know, because it's Halloween and it's, uh -huh, it's okay. okay. Oh, uh, and across the entertainment business, by the way, the black hole of data is it's getting bigger. We don't really know what streaming shows are popular. We can't add up all the ways people are consuming music. TV producers are struggling to find out how do they prove who's reaching uh, a lot of eyeballs? You know, how, wh what show is doing well? And Broadway, guess what? They stopped reporting grosses. Is this just annoying, by the way, Michael, for you and I, journalists, or a real problem for the industry as a whole? Oh, and I fear Michael will have something to say about Dave Chappelle's last comedy special on Netflix. I'm pretty sure that that's and another thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Inside Baseball, we look at the deal struck between IATSE, and we'll explain what IATSE is, and they struck that deal with TV and movie producers. What are the details 
we know about, what is still unclear. And are workers excited about averting a strike or angry they didn't gain more? Because yes, they're angry. They didn't gain more. In other words, we'll offer a lot of baseless speculation as usual. So nothing's changed. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And I'm taking a sip of water just as you finish. That's right. We're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes. We pull information from everywhere. And the number one movie, again, is the Chinese epic film, The Battle at Lake Chongjin. I finally sort of got the name right. So hopefully uh, that's close enough. It made $137 million this week. It's at $770 million worldwide. It's one of the biggest movies of the year. It's about to become one. It's already one of the biggest movies of all time in China. I don't see why it can't pass Wolf Warrior 2. But right now it has its eye on the second biggest movie, which is Hi Mom. Uh, so it should pass that movie, it looks like, and then perhaps challenge Wolf Warrior 2 to be the highest grossing movie of all time in China. I believe they're looking for a movie to become the first billion-dollar grocer. If it does, the vast majority of that money will come from China alone. They don't need you, Yankees. Well, you That's- know, also, it, it doesn't hurt that, let's see what's playing in, in Chinese movie theaters. Well, there's the battle at Lake Shangjin, and, um, well, okay, I guess we'll have to see the battle of Lake Shangjin when you look well, at the number of showings. There are, there and you are look other at the movies. Name. That's true. It And the big winners of the most recent holiday festival, uh, Na- Nation Day, I think it's called. Uh, this National other Day, big winner yeah. was My Country, My Parents, the third in the series. That grossed $28 million this week. That's at $210 million and counting. Then you scroll way down and you find out uh, the two movies that opened up. The Curse of Turandot, a remake of the opera with an international cast. That made $2 million. And Saturday Fiction, a Gong Li espionage drama uh, written by a controversial writer, that too opened to $2 million. Gong Li, one of the biggest stars to ever come out of China, a great actress. Those two movies didn't even begin to move the needle. So just like America, the Chinese box office is becoming more of a feast or famine type thing. Either you win out of the box or you could be in trouble. Hopefully that trend won't continue, but that's what happened this last holiday. So back can to I, the can I point out, by the way, Shangjin, Shangjin, yeah, what what you said uh, over the weekend, just the weekend, I can only go from the weekend, is one hundred and thirty four thousand show showings throughout China. My country, my parents, fifty seven thousand. So that kind of tells you that you know it drops way down, and and then of course after that, you, you were talking about Saturday Fiction, yeah, that only mm-hmm. had twenty one thousand. So there wasn't the demand. China now has those were show times. Uh, China overall has more than 80,000 screens. North America has about 44,000 screens. That's not locations, but actual screens. So one multiplex could have 20 screens or 10 screens or 12 screens or two screens on it. So they have 80,000 screens in China. They got all the capacity they need, I think. Though actually, you know, the country's three times the size of North America. So as the country grows, they may have a little room to grow. The Battle at Lake Chongjin, $137 million this week. Right behind it is James Bond. No time to die, but he does have time to make a lot of money at the box office. $135 million. I have not seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It's made $450 million worldwide. And of course, it's a theatrical exclusive. 
At number three is Venom, Let There Be Carnage, directed by Andy Serkis, Gollum. That made almost $100 million this week. That's at $280 million worldwide. It's now available for premium video on demand. You can pay $28 to buy it on Microsoft of all places. So, so wait a happened. second. You can buy it. It's not a rental. You're paying $28. You own it forever. You own it, yes. But that's, yeah, and only this one location, as far as I can tell. So that's a little weird, but who knows? You right know, and I, what I love is like, you know, Sony will go to all of these conventions and they're like, we're theatrical first. We love movie theaters, which is another way of saying we don't own a streaming service. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, and so uh, and then yet this is in its third week. It's available premium video on demand. You can buy. Right. It. So what's. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, not much difference, but only in a few locations. Right below that is a Halloween-themed flick called, cleverly enough, Halloween Kills. The latest Michael Myers with Jamie Lee Curtis, $56 million in its opening week around the world, almost all of it from North America, and it's available on Peacock day and date. So I'm sure the studio will say, see, look at this great opening, great opening, and it's on Peacock, so that means you can't hurt at all to have a movie available in homes. What do you say, Sperling? What's Peacock? The, the the streaming service. Which streaming service? Isn't Peacock? it Peacock? Yeah. What is what is Peacock? Peacock. It's the NBC Universal. Right. I'm basically okay. You're not getting my sarcasm. Yeah. No. Uh, I, no. If it was Netflix, yes, then you could say that. But it's Peacock, something nobody has. If it was HBO, I have Peacock. I've used Peacock. I own Peacock. Really? I watch Peacock. Yes. Peacock is available on. Yeah, no, I know what Peacock is. I was joking around. Uh, Well, I don't get it. 50 million people have signed up for Peacock. It's just launched and it already is available in 50 million homes. You can get it on a free level or you can pay five bucks for some ads or 10 bucks for no ads. It has 20 million active monthly users. It just that's as of July. It began just a short time ago. There you go. So you're saying it's not enough homes to dent the screening. So don't draw too many conclusions. I'd still say I got Peacock. always does well. In theaters, in fact, but Latin I, I America loves it. horror films. I could have watched it at home, and I didn't watch it either place, but I could have. Speaking of another kind of scary movie, The Addams Family Two, the animated flick that made twenty three million dollars this week. It's at sixty million dollars worldwide. Dune is chugging along, having solid holes in the countries where it has opened. Though you know this is not money that's going to get a sequel made very quickly. Twelve million dollars this week. It's at one hundred and thirty million dollars worldwide. It does have. North America and China and HBO Max all day and date in four, a few days from now, right? That's just going to yes. happen pretty now soon. Now, I saw this movie, okay? Uh-huh. I saw it in IMAX. This right. thing was shot, a majority of it was shot in IMAX because, yeah. you know, you can always tell when the, the, the non-IMAX stuff because it goes back down to a 185 or a 235 ratio, and a lot of it was full it's screen. It's a big movie, big movie. Yeah, and uh, it looked beautiful. And if they don't shoot the sequel... Uh, I don't know what to say because then this is not a movie. It's, <laughs> it's know, half a movie. It's half a movie. So, That's right. and everybody says it. I'm not spoiling anything. Everybody knew that going in. Uh, it's just, I mean, it was good. I, I enjoyed it. But at the same time, uh, I also found, you know, it's half a movie. So, well, so was The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the most successful films of but all time. But you knew that the next one was coming. You knew that that was already shot and they were, you know, it was going to be the ah. following year. This well, is, oh, if it doesn't do well, we won't make the next one. Well, <laughs> great. 
thank you for taking my money, I guess. Well, you know they're going to make another Shang-Chi. The, that film, the Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, grossed $12 million this week. It's over the $400 million mark, $414 million. The Last Duel, however, had a shaky start. This Ridley Scott film starring Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and others. That grossed $9 million. It hasn't opened up in North America yet, but not a great opening, even in the territories where it's playing. Free and, guys. And people say that they like it. The, the, those that have seen it have, have said they liked it, the, who, one, the who, people that I know. Who are who, these people? It's, oh, gotten these pretty, just, it's gotten pretty mixed to poor reviews. It has not and, gotten And I think reviews. it is open in the U.S., by the way. Was, it was open on like uh, a screen or something, right? Well, I know that when I do a oh, is this, oh a, this is the oh this is the week where it made seven million dollars. It's got an eighty-seven percent on tomato on Rotten Tomatoes, and when you go closer and look and say the 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 top critics, then you can see it drops down quite a bit. And it's the the best reviews are like, eh, it's not bad. There's no okay. race here. I mean, there is, you know, a, a few people love it, of course, as with any film. But in general, I would say it got mixed to poor reviews. Free Guy is chugging along, three hundred and thirty million dollars worldwide, and then the Many Saints of Newark which we'll get to in a minute, that made another $1 million. That's at $11 million worldwide, as many people said, hey, look, they watch The Sopranos on HBO, the movie's available on HBO, it just makes sense to watch it on HBO, and that's apparently what happened for a lot of people. But you can't really draw any conclusions from this weird pandemic era. In the art house circuits, Lamb, a horror flick of sorts, passed the $2 million mark, it's the highest grossing Icelandic flick of all time in North America. It is a great movie. I saw it in Cannes. It's a great movie. Now, don't go in expecting like, you know, shooting up, shoot em up action. That's not this movie. It's a, it's a, very, it's a creepy psychological horror film from Scandinavia. Yeah, really Nobody good. expects and a shoot em up action flick. Yeah. It's, and it's called Lamb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not called John Wick 4, but you loved it. I, I liked it. I remember because I, I was told, oh, you got to go see this. A24 picked it up and I went to see it and I was like, oh my God, that was so creepy. Not in a like jump scare kind of way, but in a like psychological, like hor not horror so much, psychological thriller, supernatural stuff going on. It was really interesting. I think we've got a growing problem in terms of data and that brings us to the many saints of Newark. There's a lot of areas now that in the business that we don't have any good, reliable third party data. We don't have good movie grosses aren't being reported all the time. Theater grosses aren't being reported at all on Broadway. Streaming data numbers is vague at best if we get anything. Uh, Nielsen is trying to do some reporting, but it's all sort of catch as catch can. You can't really rely on it. And you certainly can't rely on the information provided by the people doing it. Streaming is a big mess. We're missing all sorts of eyeballs. People are listening to music in new ways. They're watching TV and movies in different ways, and we're not capturing all of that attention. It's always been hard to catch people in bars watching stuff together or dorm rooms. Now, trying to catch what people watch on their phone or their laptop versus their cable versus, you know, it's a nightmare. It's hard for everybody, but the lack of data, I think, is a really big problem. Here's a story in Variety about the many saints of Newark. Clearly, HBO Max reached out and said, we got a great story to tell. Variety ran a story, and I question that because the data is so vague and unreliable and you have to trust them that it just sounds like complete BS. Here's what they said. They said it's a big hit. Variety quoted HBO Max saying it did triple the numbers of the second biggest movie that week. They didn't in, tell us the numbers of the second biggest what? movie. Yeah. Or that. It's the most vague thing. That's absolutely meaningless. It says it has outperformed comparable films in a similar budget range like Hugh Jackman's Reminiscence and Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho. Okay. Both of which were big flops. 
<laughs> we know that. And then the and the and the and the slicing and dicing similar films with a similar budget is so, you know, vague again. And they point okay, out Okay, tell the, us the budget. How about this? Tell us the yeah, budget. Yeah, they won't even tell you that. The Sopranos, the show that it came from, they say that broke HBO Max records for weekly viewing of a series. That's at least a firm, you know, it's the biggest week of viewing of a single series ever on HBO Max. Of course, HBO Max is over a year old. So it's not really that bit of a history. And of course, they didn't give us the actual numbers. So I think that's a big problem. And we got the same thing with Netflix. They said 111 million. We don't normally report on Netflix posting, but this is to make a point. We're talking about Squid Game, one gotten so much attention. And Netflix says, you know what? 111 million households around the world have watched at least two minutes of the Korean TV show. That's great. I know someone who watched five minutes and turned it off when it got violent. They said it beats the record of Bridgerton, which was seen by 82 million people in its first month. They say it was a number one hit on Netflix in 90 countries. Okay. Uh, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's good. A Korean show like Squid Game is gaining some attention. I think people are watching it. I certainly know people talking about it. Uh, that follows Argentina's Money Heist, Germany's Dark, France's Lupin, that's great. I love that these international shows are gaining worldwide audiences, including people here in America. Uh, one thing I don't understand is why Netflix only talks about the first 30 days of a show. What if Squid Game took uh, three weeks or a month to catch fire? You know, I like, don't know. Do I, they- yeah, I've noticed that, actually, that they only they're like in the first 30 days. And I'm like, yeah, but we didn't even know about it for the first like, well, but we week. did. It caught it caught on very quickly. Right. And we know that in our streaming numbers, it didn't even make the top 10 in its first week on streaming, according to Nielsen's Catch Us Catch Can data. So that means it really caught fire in the second, third week. But, you know, some shows take a while to build word of mouth. And on Netflix and things like that, I think it would take longer because it's not like everybody has to watch it that one week. You can pick it up anytime. Are people Plus still the watching? the way they do this like mm-hmm. oh they 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 looked at the the trailer or they looked at Not the, the trailer has to be an actual two I, minutes I I'm, yeah I'm, yeah i'm joking around and it has right. to be an actual minute or two of the film or the but that's, and that can happen almost by accident frankly autoplay you know they can offer something up next so yeah but you know maybe people are still digging the new latin spin on one day at a time maybe they're still watching orange is the new black I mean, I want to know what shows are doing six months or a year, not simply as a journalist, but as a fan. I'd love to know those shows. You want to know long tail. You want to see long tail. Well, I want to know. I don't see. I I think it's cool to have an out of the box hit, but I don't know why they wouldn't also trumpet or cheer about shows that took three months to catch fire or six months. Who cares? You know, Uh, so I'm not quite sure why they have that narrow focus on the first 30 days. I assume if it would be to their benefit if they have a show that caught on in 90 days that they tell us about that too. But we'll never know and we can't track those sort of growing trends because we don't have the data. But we do have Jake Gyllenhaal. God bless him. So he had a new movie on Netflix. It's called The Guilty, directed by Anton Fuqua. It's a remake of a very good film. Uh, it's like 90 minutes long. And the data coming out from Netflix is that this movie in its first week was number one in 91 countries. And Jake texted out, quote, a massive 69 million households will have watched the film in its first 28 days, end quote. To which I say, nope, Jake, that's not what they told you. What they said probably was that at least 69 million households watched at least a minute of the film. <laughs> that's all they told you. They didn't tell you that those people completed the film. I'll bet a lot of them did, maybe most of them. I'd love to know. And that brings me to Broadway. I've heard a rumor that Aladdin, one of the biggest hits in all time on Broadway, may be shutting down. It was doing great right before the pandemic. This show was on fire. It had a 
big, big, strong audience week after week. It was making a lot of money. And the problem is a show like that after five, eight, 10 years, you're only there for tourists and kids, a show like this. So, you know, there's no local people ready to go back and see Aladdin now that, you know, maybe I'll go see American Utopia with David Byrne, but I'm not going to line up to see Aladdin again, though I wouldn't mind seeing Aladdin again. But the audience for that show after all those years is like 90% tourists. And how many tourists are in New York right now, Sperling? Let's see, counting, let me subtract the two, um, mm-hmm. none. Yeah. There's like right. hardly any tourists in New York right now. If Aladdin has to shut down, that will be a disaster for Broadway. A lot of people will be out of work. That means Phantom must be in trouble. That means Wicked could be in trouble. Uh, Disney would just have the Lion King, and they would do anything to keep that show running. Maybe they opened up too soon and need to wait six months for tourists to come back, but tourists don't come back if the shows aren't there. It's a very difficult chicken and egg thing. The biggest problem for us is that we don't know the grosses. Aladdin reopened. We have no idea how full the place is. They don't want to tell us because they're embarrassed. Have you noticed that Mm -hmm. um, the weekend grosses box office for movies, no time to die. You did not get a Friday, Saturday, Sunday gross. Right. Until Sunday. Until Mm -hmm. Sunday. Then they said, here's how many people saw it. So they didn't want people going, oh, well, it's tanking or, oh, well, it's doing well. Let's go see. I mean, they just. I thought I saw Friday update and Saturday updates from deadline. Those those were, um, you know, Thursday night grosses you know like the right big i saw the night. thursday night gross yeah, yeah. i thought i and, thought we got it for halloween kills you know we got the thursday night gross yeah and, it, and the it, what they're doing is it's on track to make they don't say how much it's made they just say uh-huh. it's on track to do a 50 million dollar opening what i've noticed is that Comscore is back to simply reporting the weekend grosses rather than the entire week for a brief period they said wow the weekend grosses are so small we want to gather every penny we can and i say you know what Comscore, you should include the entire week's grosses anyway because these movies look better when you report the entire week, especially if it's early in their run. There's no reason. not. Why would you ignore the money made Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and in some cases on Thursday? That just- I want to know how much Bond made on Monday in the U.S. because it was a holiday. It was Columbus Day. I actually know at least five people who told me, oh, I went to see Bond on Monday. I'm like, on a Monday? But I would love to know what that what the gross was on Monday. For example, I- if we only reported the weekend gross for the battle, of Lake, Lake, battle at Lake Shengjin, we would say $78 million, but it made $60 million on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday. So we get to say $137 million. That's a lot bigger. That Why ignore this? No time to die. That actually made $78 million over the weekend, but we're reporting the f- accurate since last week. It made $135 million. Why would you ignore almost $60 million in grosses from James Bond? It makes no sense. I urge Comscore to go back to the full-week grosses, and I hope Everybody else will too. It's only for the better. And I just answered my own question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day, seven million dollars. That's how much it made. Ah, there you go. Ah, let's talk about Dave Chappelle. Have you watched his show yet? I have not. Well, I have nothing to say because I think you should go to the New York Times and read Roxanne Gay's piece in the Times, an opinion piece in the opinion section. It's terrific. It says everything I could want to say. It says it's well. Uh, Hannah Gadsby had a hilarious <laughs> tweet out mocking uh, Ted Sarandos. He tried to throw in her name like, well, we have lots of diversity, like like Hannah Gadsby. And she's like, yeah, don't use me to cover up your mess. And then she just lambasted him and made the most vile comments and said, but I didn't cross the line because there isn't one anymore. <laughs> so it was just, it was brutal, brutal, very funny. So And Ted Sarandos being one of the CEOs of, of Netflix. That's right. And, so, and in charge of content. 
So that exhausting story is part of a social justice, and it's got to be even more exhausting for people who are trans, who are tired of being mocked and belittled. But anyway, the, we have some good news. The BBC updated their sexual harassment guidelines. This may seem silly. Oh, they changed some guidelines on paper, but it makes real-world difference. On every set, if there's an intimate scene, there must be an intimacy coordinator. Every crew member must complete bullying and harassment sensitivity, and every call sheet must contain a phone number for complaints and concerns. Modest stuff, but when you see that there every day and there's a number you can actually call, that might make you have the courage or to believe you'll be listened to and things will be okay and maybe it's worth doing. So all good moves. And, and then what is Superman is bisexual? What? I go away for one week <laughs> and what happens? And apparently he likes the arty types. Uh, it's oh. actually it's actually Jonathan Kent, the son oh. of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, but he does wear sport the S along with Dad, so he's super teen, I guess. He's also coming out as bisexual. He starts to have a relationship with a guy who's got like pink or purple hair. He also is fighting the climate crisis, stopping a school shooting, and defending refugees. And there's a new slogan: "Truth, justice, and a better tomorrow." Rather than okay. truth, justice, and the American way. And before Fox News gets all in a lather, and I'm sure they will, the fans who really know Superman, his logo has changed many, many times over the past 80 years or whatever, however long it's been. It's never been just one thing. Truth, justice, and the American way actually came up, I believe, during World War II or the Cold War era. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget yeah. which one it was. So, it, and it has been dropped, and other things have been used at different times and places. One reason it sticks in people's minds is because it was used in the Christopher Reeve film, the greatest comic book movie of all time, Superman the movie. And they went back to that phrase. So that's why some people think, oh, they should never. It wasn't even the original phrase. So, you know, they want to keep it. I'm, get it. You want to sell Superman to the rest of the world and the American way. It's like, well, I'm in France. Maybe I don't want to hear that. So it's, it makes sense. It's reasonable. And, you know, before you get in a lather about uh, Jonathan Kent, hey, guess what? The latest Robin is also queer. A new character in Aquaman is a gay black man poised to become the hero. And Batwoman was introduced as a love interest for Batman, kind of his beard, because they were worried about Batman being seen as gay. So, well, give her a girl. Get a girl in there. Well, guess what? Now she's a lesbian. <laughs> so... <laughs> These now, now he's her beard. <laughs> and there's in comic books, you have to remember there are always multiple books for big characters, multiple storylines. They work out things and they come to an end and they do something new. Nothing is written in stone. They tweak the stuff and come up with new ideas all the time because it creates new opportunities for storylines and new ways to see a character. And there's always more than one. There's Miles Morales and there's the classic Peter Parker when it comes to Spider Man. Everything's going to be okay. And what's wrong with two justice and a better tomorrow? That sounds good to me. So it's not a big deal then. Oh my goodness, that was well done. It yeah, must be well. time for Big Deal Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story? Well, Disney's chief creative officer, okay, uh, and I guess he's really... I don't know, maybe he was the chairman of the motion picture department. Alan Horn, he is retiring after decades in the business and nine years alone at Disney. He co-founded the production company Castle Rock with director Rob Reiner and headed it for nine years. That amounted a lot to success thanks to Seinfeld becoming the money machine, giving the small company a great cushion during its lean years. Then Horn went to Warner Brothers, where he was a big success until losing out in a boardroom politics. Remember that whole like bake-off between 
oh. uh, Suzuhara and you know the the head of television and Alan Horn the head of movie and then Suzuhara won and Alan Horn left. And you remember? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- th- that's what he gets for focusing on, on movies. You know, by the way, you know, getting passed over. Warner Brothers stumbled after he left, but Horn went on to Disney and even bigger success. He's been involved in rebooting Star Wars, getting Marvel fully integrated into the company, and keeping animation on top. And now he's stepping down. Big deal or big whoop? Well, you tell me. I feel like this is your area. So uh, what, what's the deal? Do you think this is... We've got, obviously, Bob Iger is leaving. He's stepped aside. Bob Chapek is in charge. Now Alan Horn, who was at Bob Iger's side for a lot of years, he is stepping down too. I think there were some ruffled feathers from Iger's camp because Bob Chapek is like, well, I'm in charge now. And he put all his people in, in position. They're like, wait, whoa, whoa. You think you're in charge, charge? <laughs> there was some snippy little comments here and there, but JPEG is in charge. This is just a, a, a normal changing of the guard, or is this something people should be concerned about? I think it was a surprise when Alan Horn went to Disney. A, a lot of people thought, well, wait, isn't he retiring from Warner Brothers? Uh, and so to be there nine years, I can't believe it's been nine years. It's, it seems like it was uh, just yesterday. So just a, a little background. Alan Horn took over for uh, Terry Semmel and Bob Daly, who ran Warner Brothers for like Decades. A hundred, a hundred years. Yeah. And he was doing it with uh, Barry Meyer, right? Yes. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, there was that bake off, which was just such a bad idea. Uh, and then he left when, but when, that was Jeff, Jeffrey Buke said, we need young people in here. You're doing, you're too old. We need young kids in here. Right. And so then he went to Disney and he's done a good job. Now, for instance, what will Disney be missing? Somebody who has uh, some institutional knowledge, not just of Disney, but of of the business itself. So when the whole Scarlett Johansson thing happened, uh, he and, and they reached a settlement. He said, "Look, let's reach a settlement, but then offer her another movie, Tower of Terror." So then let's let's get her in and make this announcement so that it's not only did we settle, but she's doing the next movie. She and we're we're still in business together, so that it shows. That talent can come back after a disagreement that shows that we're still talent friendly, friendly enough that Scarlett Johansson can sue us and then still work with us. And so that was all his doing. We'll see if and, it actually gets made. But yes, that's important to do. I don't know how you know that he's responsible for that decision. Well, but that's because they kind of came. Yeah, the insiders kind of came out and went, look, that's what he did. You know, he, he really forced the hand there. And and I think, you know, as everything shifts to Disney Plus, losing someone like Alan Horn, it's a big deal. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it is a big deal anytime some major player goes, uh, but there's no reason to think necessarily that they're going to stumble. No, I think no, that's, not at all. that's the big question. All right, good. Well, and the Nobel Prize for Literature, okay, it goes to Tanzanian <laughs> writer. Oh. And, and I'm going to turn it over to Michael, who probably knows how to pronounce this name. Well, I think Abdul Razak Gurna. He's okay, a Tanzanian. So, uh, so Abdul Razak Gurna. Well, an academic, an editor, short story writer, essayist, and novelist has one too many jobs there, you know, just putting us to shame. (laughs) Gurna wrestles with refugees, displacement, identity, colonialism, you know, the things the world has wrestled with for decades now. Sure, he's no Bob Dylan. His harmonica playing is for bleep. Uh, but, (laughs) But Gurna is most definitely not an obscurity. 
the Nobel sometimes grabs, you know, they kind of go after these people for political purposes. But yes, Gurna is the first African writer in years to win the prize, but he's also been critically acclaimed for many years, being longlisted and shortlisted for the Booker Prize several times, as well as shortlisted for many other awards, ranging from major European awards like the Whitbread and the Commonwealth to the LA Times Book Prize. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. I think it's a good choice. I've absolutely not read a word by him, but looking it up the reviews and the and the respect and how he's been bubbling under and had lots and lots of great attention for uh, his body of work makes me realize, yeah, this is a guy I really want to catch up on. A very worthy pick, not one where you look and you go, oh boy, this just sounds like some sort of, you know, nope, nope. This sounds like a really, the thing that the Nobel should do best, honoring someone like Dylan because they know, look, we're making a statement about what is art and now honoring someone like Gurna because he has done a great body of work. And not only is he worthy, but he deserves the spotlight that he has almost come close to so many times in his career. Well, of course, they didn't pick a winner in 2020, right? I mean, that was the the big deal there was that they well, they had a, they've got all sorts of controversy in the, in the committees, yeah. the selection committees. It's been a nightmare. So this is certainly an indication of at least they're got it together enough to make a decent pick. Well, and um, by the way, I heard an alarm go off. Does that mean our time together is up, or is that? Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad we had this time together. No, it's just a just a, just a little reminder. But we're okay. You used to have a blower and uh, a, a blow leaf blower in the background of your audio, but you're okay now. Yeah, I don't yeah. hear it. <laughs> and, and Warner Brothers is continuing to embrace 45. 45 is the new 90. Actually, and that's the film industry's favorite number, 45. It's all in on the 45-day window in theatrical for North America. And now it's showing that, you know, that same commitment in the rest of the world, even though different markets might perhaps call for regionalized tweaking. Yeah, no, no, that's not going to happen. 45 days it is, at least in the U.S., the numbers back them up. Most movies make most of their money in 45 days. If they're still going strong, hopefully Warner Brothers won't cut the legs out from under a movie that still has traction, they could kind of say, oh, yeah, no, you know what? It's still playing well. Let's keep it in theaters. Big deal or big whoop? Well, you tell me again, it's exhibition. It's your world. I think it's a big deal. You sort of were like, well, we knew they were going to go to 45 days in North America, but now we have confirmation that they're going to 45 days all over the world. Uh, That's part and parcel of having the HBO Max sitting there waiting and ready. We'll have to see in practice if and when they say, okay, this movie's still going strong, it's worth it to us. You know, nobody's sitting at their TV screen hitting refresh to see a movie 45 days after it opens. It's just not happening. So they can relax. You know, if a movie's still doing well, let it play out. (laughs) It can come 80 days. And for the movies that aren't played out, that are played out in 20 days, maybe there'll be some flexibility in the parts of the theaters. But 45 days is plenty soon. You like Dear what? Evan Hansen is already on premium video on demand, and that's within a, th- it might be 30 days. But well, frankly, he, I don't know anybody that's racing to see that movie. Right. Well, well, that's, that's their argument, that they want that movie out on premium while they've still spent the money on advertising, while it's still somewhat present in your mind. And if you waited 90 days, people are like, oh, I'd forgotten that movie existed. You know so what, though? I will say this. I think. But that's been opened on September 9th. No, that was TIFF, September 24th. So yeah, this is three weeks. I don't necessarily know that the whole argument of, oh, well, we, we have to re-advertise it or remarket it. You know what? 
All you have to do is pay to have it placed on the home screen of any of these services, whether it's Roku or whether it's Apple TV or whether it's the Google Google Chromecast I love or Google. Amazon. Google is my favorite. Google. <laughs> it's my it's the the anti Google. Yeah. No, it's uh uh you know I see this all the time and I'm like, okay, so they paid to do that. That's smart because then it's calling attention to it. And since that's everybody's starting point, you're basically getting in front of everybody's eyeballs. So it's it's on Apple or Amazon or Google or Vudu or Microsoft for 20 bucks right now. So it's not available for streaming yet or for rental, but you can buy it for $20 right now. And uh, I don't know how much Apple is going to promote it or Amazon, but like, you're right. You want to keep prominent on Amazon and Apple pay for it. Yeah. And I know that on Roku, it said premium video on demand. And I thought like, what do 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 consumers know what premium video on demand is? Like, yeah, barely. Maybe. Yeah. Well, okay. uh, I just wonder, do the Grammys know what country music is? (laughs) Because Casey Musgraves. Yeah, this is a little complicated. Casey Musgraves is one of the most important artists to come out of music in years. Like Taylor Swift, Musgraves, leaned into pop in, into her pop palette, so to speak, on her biggest album to date, which was Golden Hour. And the album, it went on to win the Grammy for Country Album of the Year and the overall album of the year, too. Now her new album has been rejected by the Grammys as really just a pop album. The album won't be eligible for the Country Album of the Year award, even though, and this is where it gets confusing, some of the songs are country enough to qualify for individual song categories. You put on a fiddle, you get to be in the country category, but most of the album sounds like a pop album. That's what the Grammys have decided. Yeah, and her manager wrote an impassioned open letter saying, in part, do we really want Morgan Wallen to be the face of country? Do we? (laughs) Oh, and the album has basically the same sound and the same creative team and players as Golden Hour, and it might even be more country than Golden Hour. Here's the thing. What gives? Just in time to change the topic, the Grammys then ruled Bo Burnham's soundtrack to his acclaimed comedy special. It will not be eligible for comedy album. And now Michael is really pissed, I'm sure. Big deal or big whoop. (laughs) Well, I think this may be a question of them saying maybe it shouldn't have been eligible for country album last time out. That may be what's going on here. There's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of explaining the process. It went to the country people and to pop and others. And the country people are like, I don't know, this isn't really country. They asked the pop people, will that be qualified for pop? I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a pop. It's going to be eligible for our pop album categories. And the country people, I think, looked at the fact that it was put out by a multiple label, so it wasn't put out by just the country label. They didn't service any songs to country radio. To me, it doesn't really sound like a country album, which is upsetting, I guess, for Casey Musgraves and her manager to hear. But, you know, at some point, Taylor Swift was like, I'm not country right now. I'm not country. If I start covering Patsy Cline songs, then I'll be country again. And maybe Casey just needs to embrace the fact that she's moved on sonically from what country music really is. Uh, It ain't easy. I empathize, and certainly they have a good case. They're like, it's the same people and sound as our last album. But that's really more about the fact that they made a mistake on the last album, not that this one suddenly isn't country. The last album wasn't that country either. So I feel bad. I understand the problems. How broad of a palette does country music have? It ain't easy. What should be R&B versus pop versus hip hop versus jazz versus traditional jazz versus, you know, oh, it's a pain in the neck. It ain't easy. 
but it doesn't sound like they were flippant or, you know, the manager's argument was somebody's got it in for her. people in country music vote on this. And they know if she's not eligible for a country album slot, that opens then, up for maybe my client. And that's the big conspiracy theory. But the fact is it went to like six different groups of people. And then the overall people, they really took their time and were like, it was definitely a considered judgment whether it's right, right or not it wasn't done flippantly and i don't think it's one of those bizarre cases where like they just stabbed someone in the back or the weekend where everybody just lost their mind and decided he shouldn't get a nomination for anything <laughs> yeah, and bo yeah. burnham is crazy 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 those are funny songs elton john is back in fact you could say he's still standing yeah 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 <laughs> well done he's yeah he's, he's back on the singles chart with his new song cold heart John graciously and correctly credits the artist Dua Lipa from 19... Well, I guess he's crediting her with helping power the song back onto the charts, giving him the longest chart span in history for hitting the top 40. He's going from the 1970s with your song to today. He passes Michael Jackson, if you don't count seasonal holiday hits. Okay, that's that's where Elton John is these days. He's also on a commercial right now. Did oh, you notice you that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. For like, yeah. Uh, on the album charts, Tony Bennett's duet album with Lady Gaga gives him a great swan song by extending his record span of top 10 albums to 59 years. Yes, his first top 10 album began in 1962. Oh, and Adele set all sorts of streaming records with her new hit single, Easy On Me. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? That's a big whoop. It's just fun for geeks like me. It's cool to see. Elton John, of course, had the greatest run of hits ever. It's like Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak. He was on the Hot 100 chart every year from 1970 to 2000. 30 years in a row, always, always hitting the charts. Unbelievable. Every single year, at least one of his songs broke onto the charts. That that could that could fall. That record could fall, but that's going to be really really hard to do. Uh, you know but, what? Somebody should make a movie about him. Yeah, yeah, that's that's could call it, call it thirty. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And maybe of course, call it Rocket Man or I'm yeah, still standing. No, no, no. This only covered that. It never worked. This only covers the history of the Billboard 100 and the Bill uh, Singles Chart and the Billboard 200 album chart. But if you go back to pre Hot 100, even Bing Crosby only has a 30-year span of hits from 1927 to 1957. Now, if you toss in holiday hits, Bing Crosby's span will go from 1927 to, I assure you, 2027. <laughs> he will hit a 100-year span in about six years. So that's great. And one final little note here in music. Uh, there was a thing about Adele and her new album, and her record label made a point of saying, now, a her last album famously was not on any streaming service for like six weeks. You had to, you couldn't go listen to the album. You had to go buy it, making it one of the biggest selling albums of all time. She recognizes it's a new world. Her label says that Adele insisted, insisted her new album be on streaming services right from the get-go. We're like, yeah, I don't think she had to bend your arm. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you really, really wanted to not, not try that again, not in this era. So there you go. Maybe that's Especially a little inside baseball. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. Strike. In fact, strike. We, strike. Yeah. Strike. Well, oh, wait, actually, what? hold on. Oh, Calm oh. down. Okay. A strike has been averted between IATSE and the AMPTP. They've reached maybe. a deal on it. Maybe. maybe. Now, now I, I have been asked, what does IATSE stand for? So let me tell you what it stands for, Michael. Okay. Now, have a seat. Have a seat because. You're going to mm -hmm. need to sit down while I read this out to you. It stands for 
The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Moving Picture Technicians, Artists, and Allied Crafts of the United States, its territories, and Canada. So it's basically the people on the set that aren't behind the camera. You got your director and your cinematographer, and then you got all the crew. Almost all those people are represented by IATSE. Now, the casting director is with the Teamsters. The directors have their own guild. The cinematographers and the writers have the WGA, but most of the crew. No, no, no. Cinematographers are represented by IATSE. Oh, are they IATSE as well? I beg your pardon. So most of the crew, including the cinematographers, thank you for that, are represented by IATSE. So it's the people on the sets making it happen. What's the AMPTP stand for? Well, that is. That stands for the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So now, let me studios. point something out here. The, the studios. studios but yeah. It's really not the studios, but it's the studios. And what I mean by that is the studios consistently say, well, we can't all get in a room and negotiate with you because that would be collusion. So here's what we're going to do. There are a bunch of producers out there that make movies for us. They're all represented by the AMPTP. And if you cut a deal with those producers, which, by the way, are technically the people that are hiring you, we will abide by whatever deal you cut. So they basically have tapped the AMPTP, the studios, that is, and the networks to, to go and negotiate on their behalf. Same thing with streamers, by the way. They all rely on the AMPTP to, to basically negotiate with, trade, with, with, uh, with labor groups. Now, IATSE got a 98% strike support vote, meaning the entire union was extremely united behind fighting for important concessions. They had a lot of support from every other union. It would have been the first time in their history, in their 128-year history, that they would have struck. And if this deal is approved by the members, they will have avoided that strike. I know people who are, you know, relieved. However, Variety is reporting that the workers, the actual union members, are underwhelmed, very underwhelmed. They feel like there was little focus on workplace conditions, on really clamping down on tight turnarounds and working through lunch and stuff like that. The sheer exhaustion of it all under dangerous conditions. Uh, The LA Times said, look, the major networks didn't want to go dark and lose ground to streamers while the new streamers needed massive content. We're seeing workers strike all over the country, John Deere, Kellogg's. Uh, people who are just not asking for jobs at, you know, at, at theater chains and at fast food chains. They're just not showing up. What workers have leverage right now, coal miners, fast food employees, everybody's quitting or waiting for higher wages. So there's a lot of leverage to be had here. These are some of the key points that we have. And here are some of the complaints as well. A 3% increase in wages every year during the three-year contract. Is that good or bad, high or low? What do you think, Spro? Well, it's retroactive, number one. I, I wonder what it's retroactive to. From the last, from the last end of the last contract, because I believe the contract already... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Not, not uh, wildly retroactive. But the studios were offering like 2.5% second year and 2% the third year. And so what I would say is, what is the cost of living... Uh, what is inflation right now? If it's mm. 2%, then it's great. If it's 4.5%, which a lot of people are saying, you know, it's above 4%, then that's a problem because you're basically losing money every year as you get your raise. Right. So then at least you get a cost of living adjustment. And that's important. Uh, There's a 10 hour turnaround rule. There's often been a 10 hour turnaround. Most people say that's already in their contract. For example, if you wrap at midnight, you can't come back till 10 AM. However, People make exceptions, all this sort of thing. And the implication here seems to be no more exceptions. You're really going to pay a big penalty if you try to do less than a 10 hour turnaround. I get the feeling some people say this is not a change at all, so why should I be excited? Right, and that's really the problem because remember, a 10-hour turnaround is from the time you say, okay, it's a wrap, you're released. 
Uh, and the second you get released, that clock starts. Well, <laughs> what if you have an hour commute home and, and then an hour commute shower, back to the set? And you want to eat and you want to rest and maybe watch yeah. something before you go to bed. Right. Well, for, forget about that. So what they're saying is, yeah, that doesn't really, so that means you're starting with a 14 hour day. Like that's right. where you're starting. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best case scenario. Now what's a fratter day? I'd never heard this before, but so there's a lot you, of talk of employees complaining about no more fratter days, which is a combo of Friday and Saturday. Right. So there's two types of production. There's the five day work week, which is, you know, normal work week, Monday through Friday. So that's what you would work on like a television series, Monday to Friday. Uh, and then there's independent production. <laughs> yeah, and, and then there's the the uh, independent productions, which usually have a six day work week, and you sign on knowing that. But Friday, you asked about Friday, is that's when you kind of start your production at like 10 a.m. on a Friday, and it goes to like 3:30 in the morning on Saturday, and you don't really get out until like 4:30, 5 o'clock on this Saturday. And a lot. All the time. And then, of course, you're exhausted, so you lose all of Saturday because you're asleep at 6 a.m. Daddy, daddy, won't you toss a ball with me? Shut up. Shut up. I got to yeah. go to sleep. And so then all you get is Sunday. And guess what? The next thing you know, you're back at work on Monday morning. And sometimes there's there's sun, <laughs> Sunder Day or whatever you want to call it because I'll say, oh, well, Monday will start at 11 p.m. on 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 it's Sunday because it's it's a night shoot. So you're pretty much planning the whole time all Sunday. You're just waiting to go to work. So this is a big quality of life issue. There's just super long work days. They're skipping lunches and then they're working until three in the morning on Saturday. And they're saying, you got to get right back there. First thing Monday, what they agreed to is a 54 hour rest period for a five day work week and a 32 hour rest period for a six day work week. For example, if you worked till 3am on a Saturday morning and they said, break, you couldn't come back until 9 a.m. on Monday morning. That doesn't sound like a huge win to me, but it's, it's something, I guess. It sounds like Fridays are still in place, I guess, but maybe, maybe most shows start more like 5 or 6 a.m. They, you know, they don't show up at 9 a.m. to start work, that's for sure. So it is a bit of a difference, but I don't know that it solves that problem, that abuse of just exhausting long working hours week after week after week. And I guess the AMPTP felt, well, look, you know, most human beings will get a 48 hour, you know, Saturday, Sunday. No, but you get, you get 5 p.m. Yeah. on a Friday. And exactly. Then you, and you don't have to show up till 9 a.m. on a Monday if you got some classic work schedule. What's that? That's 24, 48, uh, 5 p.m. on Sunday to 9 is 9 and 7. That's 16. That's 58. That's a 64 hour rest period. Try 64 hours, buddy. Well, they did get All some right. one, one big win. There's a big deficit in the health and pension funds. That was covered to the tune of $400 million. I assume they will also have increased the pay-in so that they won't develop another deficit down the road, but I don't know that. A lot of major cities and states have sick leave benefits. Those are now going to be nationwide, so it doesn't matter what state you work in, you're going to have better sick leave benefits. What about meal breaks? That was a big issue. Well, meal breaks are, you know, there's usually a lunch. We're working through lunch. Dinner. We're working yeah, through lunch, people. Exactly. And it's All like, well, the okay, the actors aren't working through lunch, and maybe the the uh, set dressers aren't working through lunch. That's because the set builders are working through lunch. Or, you know, there's always <laughs> – and then people would not get lunch because, you know, one group was working, the other group was – and so they said, okay, no more of this. It's lunch or dinner. And, and by the way, you'll show up on these sets – and they'll have lunch and dinner. They get a, like a meal penalty if they don't. So you get paid extra 
Right, but I'm not, I'm not sure that they think the penalty is big enough to stop the abuse and stop the practice of just saying, we're working through lunch. The studios again and again are very happy to just move through lunch. There was a call for like 15-minute breaks every three hours. They didn't get that, I don't think. What about streaming? The biggest issue to me, one of the biggest issues, is the fact that they have a lower rate for a streaming service than they do for like a network. And for a major studio right. when they're making a movie, the big call was like, look, streamers are not the new kid on the block that needs help. They're the biggest game in town. We should not be paying cut rate contract fees for a streamer. Did they get an increase up to their you know base level that they get for everybody else? I think that is correct. They did. They um, did. Which was, okay. that, that was, that's what I'm understanding. I mean, of course, we haven't seen what that is, but they say, you know, they will no longer be paid out at a separate rate, which to me means, okay, you know, if you're working on a motion picture from Paramount Pictures, you get your contract is, is at a minimum a certain amount uh, per day. Uh, what the streamers were saying is, oh, we're so new. We don't have any customers. What are we going to do? Don't fall for it ever, ever, possibly. ever. This service launched by a major studio. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We don't have enough millions of people around the world. We can't possibly pay you the standard. And basically, Ayati's saying now, yeah, um, you guys are king of the mountain now, so you'll be paying more than the studios. Not, not They're not more, but like you'll be paying the same amount as the studios. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So, a lot of unrest, a lot of unhappiness in the comment sections in Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Deadline, where those comment sections are available. Stories about it in Variety and elsewhere saying workers are very, very not happy. They needed a major sea change in the culture, and they don't see it. They're not happy about this deal. Will it be enough to kill a strike, you know, an authorization of the contract? I don't know. People don't like going on break. They've never struck before. It's going to be tough. We'll have to see how it falls out. But the possibility of a strike is not dead, unfortunately. Unlike some of the people in our obituary section, all of whom I can now confirm are dead. That's true. And now it's time uh, to, uh, to advertise the launch of my new podcast, Deadbeat. Isn't that is great? Deadbeat. Because you're is, so sick of me doing obituaries and how long I take. You're like, oh my God, we can't do 17 obituaries. I'm like, but they're fascinating. They're fascinating. What about? No, what I think a- they are. What about I think a podcast called Deadbeat, where you talk about not just entertainment stuff, but the best, most interesting people who died that week, talk to people who write obituaries, talk to morticians, to anything dead-related, but especially celebrating the lives of people. And they don't even have to be famous people. They can also be just, you find a great, cool, weird obituary, like, let's talk about it. Uh, I think, And I think Deadbeat's a great name for a podcast, don't you? I, I do. Is there a podcast named Deadbeat? I don't know. I didn't even look. I just made it up. I just thought, oh, that's a good name for this podcast I'll never do. <laughs> <laughs> well, wh- why wouldn't you do it? Who- I don't have time for this one. <laughs> <laughs> and this one's so profitable, I don't know what to do with my money. So I couldn't handle the oh, idea okay. of yet another podcast, you know, pouring in the money into my bank account. You know, we've got enough advertisers as it is. Well, you know, uh, what is really profitable is children's The Deadbeat Dads podcast. Deadbeat's radio with Zed Dead. Deadbeat radio. Deadbeat sons. Deadbeat. So they're all talking about the people who like won't pay their, their child you know, support. Child support. But uh, this is the Deadbeat. It's different. <laughs> so who's died? Gary Paulson, the author of numerous young adult and the winner, by the way, of not one, not even two, but three Newbery Awards, which is the genre's top honor. And let me tell you, as a parent, when you go into that section of the bookstore, okay, and you're mm-hmm. like, I don't know what book is good. I don't know. I don't read any of these authors. Oh my God, look, there's a Newbery Award medal. It must be good. Uh, and so you buy that book. 
And it's a good guide because the, the award has great taste over the years. Do you know you have daughters, right? Yes, I do. Did you ever, any of them ever read Hatchet? I don't think so. It's kind of a boy's book. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, genderize books like that. It's just an entertaining adventure story. It was published in 1986. It's the story of a kid flying home to see his dad in a plane. The pilot has a heart attack and it crash lands in the wilderness. And he has to survive with only his wits and the little hatchet that his mom gave him as a gift for some reason. Uh, that's how long ago it was. He carried a hatchet. It was just a private plane, but nonetheless. So ever since this book came out, Whenever a teacher or librarian or parent faced a kid who hated to read, especially a boy, they'd grab a copy of Hatchet and say, here, try this. And usually it worked. And then the next thing they asked for for Christmas was, hey, uh, can I get an axe for Christmas? <laughs> or another book by Gary Paulson. Yeah. Well, now, did you know yeah. Diane Weirman? She's a documentary producer, a force in the industry. She died at the age of 66. She's been making movies and making them happen for more than 25 years. She died from lung cancer, and that really, really sucks. I do not know her, and it feels like I should. You should. In the mid-90s, she oversaw the creation of the Soros Documentary Fund. Conspiracy alert, George Soros was involved. <laughs> anyway, she started with this fund to help seed documentary films that led her to Sundance where the Soros documentary fund merged or transformed or whatever into the Sundance documentary film program, which she oversaw for a number of years. And throughout her career, she oversaw countless major films, including three Oscar winners, Laura Poitras's citizen four American factory, which she helped make with the Obamas and an inconvenient truth with vice president Al Gore. So a very, very substantial career. Sorry to see her, her, pass away. So what a shame. Now, our next uh, obituary is for someone who uh, lived to the age of 111. 111! Okay. Animator Ruthie Thompson. No H. Thompson. Her first film was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's not even true. She was involved in movies before that. Presumably, she's the last living person to have any connection with the making of that film. Come forward now. If you're a key grip on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and you're still around today, we'll have you on the show, right? <laughs> Hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> exactly. She worked on virtually every animated film at Disney going forward, from Snow White in 1937 to The Rescuers in the late 70s, a span of 40 years. She then lived another 44 years, and she even worked for some other studios while Disney animation slumbered. Her final credit was for Ralph Bakshi's 1978 stab at the Lord of the Rings. I remember seeing that in the theater. She's also one of the first women to gain admittance to the camera union. Why? Because she was really technical and mechanical. She was really overseeing stuff. She wasn't drawing characters. And she helped create the techniques used to photograph background scenery and animated scenes onto film. And her connection to Disney goes back even further than Snow White. As a small child, she lived near the early Disney studios. They were like in a shack, literally. And they would walk by and she would peer in and eventually Roy or Walt was like, here, look around. And you know, she asked questions and stuff, thought it was cool. And Roy Disney paid her and other kids to play tag in the street while he filmed them with a movie camera to capture their movements so he could use that to study it and work on the animation that way. So <laughs> her career dates back to like eight. <laughs> so she had over a hundred years practically in the film industry unbelievable that's that's just amazing and you know what's amazing we're done we're at, we're at the end of our show but you know what if you want to write to us you can 
I wish dirt you would. At showbiz Sand- yeah, I wish you would too. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. And I wish you'd call and leave us a voicemail. You, you could we'll send money. It. You could send money. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and the number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Uh, you know what? We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox and all of that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found in one place our website showbizsandbox.com. that's where you're going to find ways to subscribe to us on itunes the google store microsoft store stitcher spotify anywhere they give podcasts away for free and someday the website you'll find a way to donate money to us too why not I'm sorry you're breaking up, Michael. I I can't hear you. (laughs) But really, rate and review us for the love of God. Come on, do it. Go on to iTunes. You haven't done it because 99% of you haven't. Well, and the the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. We have a website. It is showbizsandbox.com. They have a website. It is whoismgmt.com. Michael Gilts has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Shoot, shoot. It's uh, eltonjohnisjoedimaggio.com. I have no idea what that's in reference. Oh, his hitting the streak. His hit streak. His, his hitting hit streak. streak. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on whatever that website was, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.